Yeah, do your conversation voice. Tell me what you had for breakfast. Um, I had a single slice of toast with peanut butter on it because I was not entirely on time. So welcome everybody to uh, yet another Glass of Seawater episode. We're recording again during the Frontiers Conference. We're getting six of them in this week, which is uh, stressing me out, but we're doing well. Um, I am joined today by some very special guests um, who are allowed to introduce yourself. I'm Andrew, who uh, occasionally gets to host these things, um, but otherwise I have on my right Tom. Sorry, me. I'm a third year PhD student at Oxford University studying neutron radiation of steels for fission and fusion. Fission and fusion is what we like. Uh, I'm Paul, long-time friend of the show, so I've already introduced <laughs> myself as well, but uh, yeah, I'm a third-year PhD student as well, looking at uh, vanadium-based low-activation alloys for fusion applications. Cool. And so I'm Neil Hyatt, I'm Professor of Radioactive Waste Management at the University of Sheffield, I work mostly on chemistry of the actinides and technetium, and I'm here at the CDT giving a talk on rad waste management today. Brilliant, and we're very grateful to you for sticking around and helping us out with this. Uh, so we're... we're, we're Getting into one of the, the thorny issues today, um, and I was thinking about how to introduce this. And I think the, the way to talk about this is, uh, as if fusion isn't hard enough already, uh, we also have to render, bear in mind that the, the people who set the strategy for, for fusion research, such as it is, um, have two touchstones that they, they go by. One of which is uh, being cost competitive, and the other of which is we've got to think about uh, waste and how we're going to deal with that, uh, because no amount of... This podcast hashtag Fusion Energy will get away from the fact that we are also nuclear power. Um, and we have a lot to compare and contrast and learn from uh, the fishing community, which is why we're very grateful they're sitting in with us today. Um, so that, that's the sort of setting the scene. Uh, and we'll, we'll see how we get on with um, engaging with this, this constraint we've put on ourselves, as well as ignition of, of plasmas. Um, so we'll start, start at the beginning. Uh, from the top sources of radiation waste what what are they and i guess the easiest one to start with is we think about fission um there's fuel so fusion fuels tritium versus uranium what what are they like how do they compare as radioactive elements neil do you want to go first you're looking at me andrew so i guess i, I should um so i can tell you what i know about fission but i'm i'm certainly no expert on fusion so in fission um essentially primarily the radioactive waste is associated with spent nuclear fuel. So fuel that has been uh, irradiated in the reactor, uh, it's passed its useful energy generating capacity and it's removed. Um, and then it's either treated as a waste stored at Sellafield with the intention of disposal. Um, or the alternative is it's reprocessed to recover uranium and plutonium fissile materials to make mixed oxide fuel, again, to go back into light water reactors. So what we think of as radioactive waste in terms of some of the challenges that we see at Sellafield, for example, and other reactor sites are primarily to do with handling fuel materials and contaminating you know, uh, other, other materials and, um, and so on with, with radioactivity from spent nuclear fuel. Okay, so Paul, you're probably the most fusion-y of the fission-fusion hybrids here. Yes. Tritium. <laughs> What do we know about tritium? So I guess that the first obvious thing about tritium we're looking at, especially from a safety and waste perspective, is the fact it's uh, it's a form of hydrogen gas. So it's of course gaseous and has to be, uh, yeah. You have to. You know, there's many safety considerations you have to take into account when considering gaseous uh, substances. So 
uh, obviously it won't just stay in the same place it will uh, it can leak it can permeate through into other materials as well which I'm sure we'll get onto later when we talk about the effects it has on materials uh, also the fact that as it is a form of hydrogen it can get into water supplies it can form uh, molecules with water and other organic compounds as hydrogen is a very common atom found in all these uh, sort of compounds so when it gets out it's very difficult to put uh, the toothpaste back in the tube so to speak it's it's definitely something you want to keep under control and you want to always know where it is at all times so a lot of the uh, legal regulations relating to tritium storage are very stringent and often involve only using small amounts of it yes which is sad for us physicists because we want lots and lots of fuel to make lots and lots of fusion but mm. i'm sure they're right i think uh, to tritiate toothpaste <laughs> 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 um, how so? How would we compare the the danger of of tritium and uranium? I mean, uranium is kind of a big boogeyman for a lot of people, right? So, is, is tritium less scary, more scary? How should we think about it? It's quite a difficult question to answer, actually. Good, because um, <laughs> they're extremely different. Tritium is just a beta emitter. A beta emitter um, essentially, uh, when the tritium atom um, undergoes radioactive decay, it gives off an electron. I forget if it's a beta plus or beta minus, actually. Uh, I should probably look that up before talking about <laughs> it. It doesn't actually matter. Um, you can you can block that with, with um, any normal material. Um, it's pretty easily handleable in its, in its kind of form it is, if it's gaseous, liquid, or solid, or however. It's a, a sheet of paper, is that right, roughly, what can block beta radiation? Yeah, I think so. That's, That's alpha. Oh, no, sorry. It's, or a, a, thin, a thin piece. Yeah, a sheet of foil. A thin piece of foil is, I think, enough yeah. to block beta radiation but right yeah um, or just stand far away right right yeah. and then whereas <laughs> uh, are you, are you, when you ask uranium are you talking about the natural when you find uranium no, naturally, I think, I think or do you mean this the as, it, as it is in the fuel cycle of, uh, of a reactor so like a spent fuel configuration let's start there yeah yeah it's pretty bad. scariest one yeah uh, <laughs> uh, it's because you have very volatile very um radioactive um short half-life fission products yeah. Which is which is the biggest problem. Um, they will give off gamma rays, um, and uh, uh, I mean alpha and beta are significant. They actually cause the alpha cause a lot of heating, um, whereas um, it's the gamma rays least to. Oh, it depends on the where you are. You know, if you want to stand next to it, um, it'll be the gammas which get you. <laughs> whereas uh, if you if you if you ate it, um, you know, swallowed it, it'll be the alphas which will get you. Um, so yeah, top tip: don't don't swallow radioactive material. Um, good, right, that right. is actually the the safety thing in uh, my undergrad labs. So the worst thing you can do is is swallow. Is that a common problem in undergrad labs? Uh, well, they, they, they were they were just saying like this, the, trying to think of the safety aspect of yeah. of uh, some some you know um, alpha emitting um, like a europium or something like that mm. for detection purposes. Uh, and they said it's perfectly safe. You can touch it. Just you know, just number one rule: it's just don't eat it. Yeah. I'm just imagining old chemists kind of licking it to find out what it, you know, what kind of element it was. No, chemists are well trained, not <laughs> yeah. things from an early age. Well, they are now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, Tom gives a kind of good account of um, the issue of activity, and, and that's an important consideration. But I think, yeah, as Paul suggested or, or, or helped us to understand, you know, that has to go hand in hand um, with the physical properties of the substance. So, you know, spend nuclear fuel highly radioactive as it is, suitably shielded and cooled in, in, a, in a pond, Sellafield, for example, can be safely managed. Tritium, a bit more challenging, high specific, high specific activity, but also having properties of, 
of hydrogen and, and the issues you challenge us to think about as the incorporation of hydrogen in water and organic molecules means that it's potentially mobile and can be kind of taken into our biological systems. So it's the activity and I think, you know, the chemical and the physical properties of the substance that are important too. So that, that's the fuel, that's the, the radioactive thing we, we started with. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's the intentional one. Um, unfortunately, lots of unintentional things happen along the way as well. Um, and in particular, the byproduct of, of what you're doing with your tritium, so reacting with the deuterium, um, gives you lots and lots of neutrons, which is a familiar problem from fission as well, but they have a, a bad influence on materials, right? And they're carrying a lot of energy, so your, your walls get a, a punch in the face of kinetic energy from these neutrons. Mm. Um, it's how you heat the reactor in the first place. Well, yeah, mm -hmm. right. So we, we, we've got to remember we kind of need them to get the heat out again. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, they do terrible things to the walls, right? So how does that work? What's the mechanism for, for neutrons versus walls? We'll start, start with Paul, why not? Um, so we've, we've, in previous episodes, we've talked about more of the, uh, the mechanical damage and the way they displace the atoms within the structure. But there's also the, uh, the nuclear processes that you have to take into account. So this is uh, when a neutron comes into contact with an atom, there's a chance it can be uh, absorbed by the material and will end up transmuting it into different elements. So uh, I can't think of any t examples off the top of my head for the transmutation reactions. Tom, do you know some? I've got a really good one. Oh, Tom's got a great one. If you take some platinum, hear me out, Okay. you, you bombard it with a fusion neutron flux, you'll get gold. Modern day alchemy. Ah. Modern day alchemy. Ah. Right, we're going to price of platinum higher. <laughs> Let's not break down the argument. <laughs> the point is, you can literally make radioactive gold. Okay, uh, we've got to put that word now just, as well. Just going to edit that out and keep that for myself, I think. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I looked at the decay. Uh, how sad I am. I actually looked at because I make that joke. I looked at the decay. How one would make gold with neutrons, and the easiest way is platinum. Okay, so this is That's this is not useful at all for fusion. So right. Uh, so we, so you're, the, the, the problem we have then is we're starting with whatever genius idea we had for a warm material to start with, and then we stick it in next to our reaction and it, it, it changes, right? It becomes something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, you convert the, the actual element to something something else. So you increase um, the proton number, essentially, right. in, in the, the nucleus, which, which converts to, to uh, normally the next product table, uh, the element of the product table, but they do have different decay mechanism, mechanisms and they kind of go all over the place. Okay, and that's bad. Um, you design your reactor for a, a certain material. Um, you take tungsten, as I think mentioned before, about diverting material. Big, uh, big strong metal, yeah. Hmm? Big strong metal. Heavy metal, uh, anyway. I wouldn't use the word strong. Um, no. I would use a, a, a big brittle metal. Um, ah. <laughs> or hard metal. Hard, it is technically hard, yeah. Uh, uh, you've got to be careful around <laughs> You're, you're sat in a room with two material scientists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is strong. Um, strong effort. But, uh, strong. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, but after, after a couple of years of being in a fusion reactor, you actually now transmute tungsten to rhenium and uh, the rhenium transmutes to osmium and also the, there's another decay path from tungsten to tantalum. Um, so you're looking at about 1% rhenium, 0.1% osmium, 0.1% tantalum. So you design your you design your tungsten tile to be one hundred percent tungsten. After a couple of years, it's now not. It's an alloy, and and alloying is very different in terms of properties it gives. So we have a very unique problem with fusion where you're. Uh, I'm just taking tungsten as an example because it's quite extreme end. Um, you you start building a quaternary alloy over a year, which 
reality is we don't know exactly know how that operates or how that mm. works so is there any kind of like thinking going on about how you could like test materials with that kind of transmuting chemistry and do we have much understanding of like the impact of the transmutation on the materials properties and longevity at all uh, yes, uh, we do have ongoing radiation programs. So the the, the best uh, way we can simulate neut- uh, fusion neutron environment is is um, put it into a into a conventional fission reactor. Um, so actually, there's research at Oxford University um, where tungsten has been put into a reactor in early two thousands. It was uh, taken out um, uh, twenty ten and it was uh, stuck in storage for for a couple of years to cool down from the radioactive decay. And then now we got hold of it, and now looking at the microstructure, and and we see one percent rhenium in, in, in uh, huh. the exact numbers. Um, I don't know the top of my head, but uh, a couple of, of osmium and tantalum, you actually see they affect the the fundamental properties like mechanical strength. Um, uh, you got fracture toughness of, of these materials, which is the ultimately what you're designing with. Um, so that's kind of interesting. So in kind of the fission perspective, there's bit of thinking right now that the materials that we want to design for incorporating actinides and over the kind of hundred thousands of years of service they'll have to give us um, we try and design them to kind of incorporate that process of transmutation so the chemistry of the material as it evolves is kind of accommodated favorably like within the substance so that's kind of interesting Hmm. um so building on that fission comparison then um where where are we going to find in our sort of sketch idea of what a reactor might look like these these now so activated become radioactive um, components where are they going to I guess probably we should we'll have to restrict this argument slightly to tokamaks I guess because they're the sort of uh, a likely first generation fusion reactor and B I think the only integrated designs out there so the ones mm-hmm. that consider the power plant as a whole rather than mm-hmm. just the, the reactor concept mm-hmm. um, but no offence to ICF and, and Stellarators but um, they'll get there I'm sure uh, but yeah so if that's if that's our starting point so we're thinking about that machine where what, what parts of the machine are we worried about? Well really any part of the machine that will uh, experience significant influences of neutrons so Obviously, the closer you are to the plasma core where the neutrons are being generated, the more affluence you're going to receive. So places like the first wall of a reactor, which, as the name suggests, are the first barrier between <coughs> the plasma and the rest of the structure, and indeed the diverter, which also are directly facing the uh, plasma core, they will experience the largest neutron fluxes. And depending on the elements used and depending on the cross-sections, will probably experience the most transmutation. As you go back through the reactor, through the blanket structure, which is the uh, the secondary sort of layer, uh, which most, contains most of the important reactor systems, with the coolant and the tritium generation, they also experience significant fluxes. And then as you go further, further out towards the magnets, hopefully, and the the uh, radiation shielding, well, the clues in the name, hopefully, it will capture the last few neutrons that haven't been mopped at the blanket, and then. After that, you're not really seeing very much uh, in the way of radiation damage or transmutation at all. Right. That kind of sets out where the problems are. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to sort of switch into how we're engaging with this problem. And this is a a question in two parts, I think. And the first one is, um, have we thought about this problem enough? And I, I asked this question as a plasma physicist asking the material scientists, who clearly we have engaged quite early on in this class, so that's something. Um, but do we, you know, how, how do you evaluate our science in, in, in dealing with these problems? 
I think it's definitely been considered given that uh, a very large focus of the fusion materials community in general has been focused on researching so-called low activation alloys so basically uh, alloys that are made out of uh, low activating elements uh, i'm sure tom's got many opinions on this whether this <laughs> is actually the the path to pursue but in terms of how it having been considered yes uh, low activation alloys have been is something that have been worked on for a very long time uh, so it is something that material scientists are very conscious of and also the effects that transmutations will have on not just the radioactivity of the uh, structural materials, but also their chemical and mechanical properties as well. So yes, the answer, we're cognizant of the fact that our materials will be constantly changing. Okay, so that, that counts for the walls. Is that, um, Tom, you kind of have some experience with the system side of it. Is that a big enough picture? Um, I would backtrack slightly and, and, and uh, discuss uh, what happened in the 1990s, the uh-huh. decision which kind of, projected down the path of of uh eurofusion i'd say and, and it's at the same same time and as uh, um which so eurofusion we should say is if anybody is in charge of the roadmap and the strategy it's probably them um certainly in europe yeah they, they are the so, european so. union's answer to fusion is well, it's, uh, or is it's, that it's, it's, it's not, one of these semi-european oh. union constituted things like the european space agency and cern which are sort of just outside but heavily overlapping but anyway yes it's, it's a european collab- um consortium i think officially okay anyway um they have a criteria which they've set uh on radioactive waste is um whatever materials you use in your reactor after 100 years of it being shut down um you can then uh, deposit your uh structural components which have been activated by neutrons uh to low level waste repositories so they they can be handled by whatever you handle radioactive waste with Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm is, not actually sure idea. what you can do with low-level waste. I'm sure uh, Neil would actually comment on what you can... I'll try. Yeah, so the, the idea with low-level waste is that you, you can dispose of it in a near-surface um, disposal facility. So what we would think of as higher-activity waste, so the, the waste that come out of cellar field, um, intermediate-level waste and high-level nuclear waste, these have to go of the order of 500 metres underground in an engineered facility. Low-level waste uh, is disposed of currently at the low-level waste repository in Drig. And those are concrete-lined trenches, um, probably sort of 10, 20 metres depth from the surface, uh, covered and then kind of managed with institutional control. So I think the idea of a 100-year time frame to, to manage the waste and then into near-surface disposal is a good one because it's a principle of intergenerational equity. Um, but I think it proposes it imposes some interesting constraints on materials design, which maybe we'll unpack. Yeah. So the the equity argument is an interesting one because um, it, it it speaks to how fusion relates to fission, I think, um, and in particular some of what we do is designed to uh, improve upon that technology. And so the idea that we're not, I guess, put bluntly, burdening the the future so much. Um, how avoidable that actually is and whether it's sensible to avoid it is probably worth briefly getting into actually. So I think you know from my experience is that you know when we've you know if we manage radioactive wastes appropriately and we're responsible with it, we you know with fission, that's not necessarily a problem that we have to hand on to future generations. So pretty much we have the technology and the thinking that we need to construct a um, a deep repository today. So, you know, if we if we want to get on with it, we can. We know how to do it. And I think the evidence is that we can expect that 
repository to evolve safely over its service lifetime. So in that sense, we're not kind of leaving or we wouldn't be leaving a future generation with the burden of dealing with radioactive waste because we would have dealt with it in our lifetimes. And the problem is, you know, Sellafield, a, a, a number of factors have come together, which have led to a very sort of substantial issue of radioactivity needing to be remediated and decommissioning. That's also very expensive, um, but that might not necessarily be, or we shouldn't actually approach things in that way in the future. Um. So yeah, if you have this criteria, which mm -hmm. is low level waste after 100 years of operation. And we're well, so talking about big chunks of metal in the, so, not the fuel. Yeah. So anything exposed to the neutron fluence, which will give significant activation. So that's about all the diverter um, components will be exposed. Um, all the breeder blankets will be exposed. Um, and all the structural components, which has about maybe 50 centimeters depth from the plasma, will also be exposed um, to neutrons. Because the steel also shields neutrons and absorbs them. But... So these things have activated. You can work out the tonnage of material that will be. Um, it's about uh, a thousand tons to, to two thousand tons, depending on design, depending on what kind of demonstration type reactor you want to build. The point is, it's a lot. It, it's enough orders of magnitude. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So you have to dive into the numbers itself. But um, let's just take a thousand tons because it's a nice, easy, simple number. Um, but you look at the elements which provide a, a good way to 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 kind of characterize this is time to uh, low-level waste. You radiate in, in, in a fusion reactor, what is the time after it's shut down until it goes to a, into a classified as low-level waste repository? And you can go through some common elements people would use in a structural material. So you take iron, you know, it's part, mostly part of steel. Uh, that would take about 50 years for it to become low-level waste. So that's, you know, that's pretty reasonable, um, not too long. And you look at chromium, another really used, useful uh, um, element to make stainless steels. Again, that's about uh, 50 years before it goes to, to low-level waste. So these are fine, um, but that's not, that's not the problem where it lies. It actually lies in the other elements. So other alloying elements in steel is nickel, molybdenum, uh, niobium, uh, nitrogen. Um, all these sort of elements are essential to producing a structural steel, which is good at being a steel um, for, a, for a, a, a nuclear environment. Um, Strong, I told you. Just you know, uh, I'm just saying. If you start removing these, which which you can remove them, um, you do have a steel which is um, difficult to make good. I would leave it. I'll, I'll say that um, it's a challenge. I'm not saying it's impossible, but you start you you arbitrarily rule out elements because of this criteria of 100 mm. years. And this was made in the 90s, and the 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 modelling which backs this up wasn't released until a couple of years ago. When we, right. when we had the actual modeling capabilities of producing these sort of studies. So now we've got them, you start looking at the results and questioning why this uh, uh, criteria was set. I, I understand it from a, from a public perspective, you know, you want to reduce the amount of nuclear waste and it makes sense to have it all in a level waste because um, you don't have to, to bury it. Um, but the recent modeling suggests it would be classified as something different. Yeah. I mean, I have a, a dark and murky history in financial audit briefly before I became a scientist and it teaches me to be suspicious of round numbers. Um, so. <laughs> so I wonder, um, closing out then, how, how familiar are these kinds of questions in, in, in fission and, and, and the examples we can learn from there? So big, big chunk. Are they similar elements? That we, would we handle them the same way? How many lessons can we learn? How many problems are we making for ourselves that are new? So the waste from fission are 
are quite different um, chemically and radiologically. Um, in some senses, you know, we have more of a challenge because we have the long-lived actinides. So half-life of Neptunium-237, for example, is, is 2 million years. So, you know, it takes 10 times the half-life for that to decay fully away. So, you know, we're talking about 20 million years if, if Neptunium-237 is something we want to contain. Turns out the chemistry of Neptunium is such that we can pretty much rely on it strongly absorbing inside the repository and in in the geological rock that it's that well, it's built what, in. What is absorbing? Oh, it sticks to stuff. Sticks to stuff. Nice. So it, yeah, if it gets if it moves, it tends to stick. Okay, so it's not going to move very far. Basically, that's that's yeah. what we believe. Yeah. yeah. So I think you know if you if you contrast that with fusion, um, you know you, you you don't have those those long lived actinides so you don't necessarily need therefore um, a repository with with that kind of lifetime a deep disposal facility but I guess you know the analysis should be risk-based so we should be thinking about the total radiological hazard posed by the material in its disposal environment and if we can safely manage that within our lifetimes if we can you know, if we've got a strategy to, to dispose of it within our lifetimes then we we don't have intergenerational inequity so I think coming back to the issue of activation, we know that some of the elements that perhaps you would like to use in materials fabrication won't move in the repository. They're, they're not soluble in groundwater conditions. They have very low solubility and they tend to strongly absorb. They tend to stick to stuff when they get out. So, you know, elements like niobium and nickel, which are present in fission, in fission wastes as, as radioisotopes, we can be relatively confident that they make um, an in, insignificant contribution to the overall dose from the repository over long long time scales, and because that's based on chemistry, not on isotopics, you know, there's really no reason why that's not true. Also, fusion waste at all. So, do, do you think it's fair to say that there maybe should perhaps be a bit more of a conversation between fusion material scientists and rad, rad waste experts such as yourself? I, I hesitate to say myself, but I, I think <laughs> I think this, the the, the communities certainly have um, a lot to offer each other, I think. Mm. Um, you know, and certainly it's not just a one-way conversation. I think, you know, it's true in the fishing field that we've, you know, we've made considerable mistakes, repeated mistakes in our approach to radioactive waste dis- management and also disposal, which we shouldn't repeat again with nuclear fusion. And I think in terms of the science, there's a- already a lot to learn um, about deep disposal, which is relevant, I've learned today for, for fusion materials. So uh, hopefully this is the start of a, of a beautiful conversation. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Any other comments? No? Cool. Um, sorry, did you? No, no. I did actually have a comment. Um, you it. mentioned niobium about it um, leaching out. Um, one good thing about the niobium, if you use it in fusion, is actually it's in a metallic structure of, this, of the steel, which, which doesn't doesn't leak out even if it's in groundwater because the steel would be stainless Um, so you have some sort of added benefit in that respect where i would highly i would not expect it to to start leaching out right this is in a different form it's it's chemically uh binded differently absolutely and you know we we know or we assume in our um in our safety case analysis and there's good evidence to 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 lead us to think that um the steel components will have a lifetime of at least ten thousand years um so yeah i think there's a lot there that we can look at together to see if we can um, advance the case for dispersion fusion waste and by so doing kind of relax some of the constraints around um, elements for alloying and so on. Because hmm, this has only been in this very 
brief section of our conversation and we focused on one element now obviously in one particular scenario of like a, a leakage incident and then that's just one very very small piece of the overall puzzle in terms of uh disposal of fusion waste so if like, i think looking at a, a basis like this would be very helpful for the material science uh or the fusion material science community and i think you know when you think about how the public perceives nuclear not not always in a generally favorable light uh, it would be unfortunate if the um if the, if the challenges of the way we've managed nuclear fission kind of overshadowed the challenges of, of managing waste for fusion, which, you know, I think are significantly reduced compared to fission. So I think anything we can do to work together there to transfer that learning is a, is a good thing. That's a lovely cooperative note to, <laughs> to close out. That was a great episode. That was a really fun episode. I learned so much. Same. Even though I may have not been in it. Same. So I think uh, for our many listeners, we would really appreciate if you subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you're listening on. Yeah, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Just search A Glass of Seawater and we'll come right up. Finally, just uh, if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful. That would really help us. It greatly increases the visibility of the podcast probably more than anything else and tell all your friends and enemies that was a really good episode i enjoyed it and i learned a lot see you next time for the next glass of seawater bye